Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this is the uh, 13th uh, sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham, and our text this evening is Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 27. That's Samantha read to us this evening. Our focus is the last paragraph in that chapter as it concludes. Now, what you may have noticed as it was read to you is that it has a threefold structure. We see how Sarah is renamed as the matriarch of the covenant, and we hear Abraham's response. Then Abraham is reassured by the Lord God, and Isaac is named. Then third, at God's ascension, on that very day, Abraham immediately executes the command to circumcise. And Ishmael's inclusion is underlined. Every time Abraham's name appears in the execution, likewise Ishmael's. Now we saw last Lord's Day how circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It's a permanent, irrevocable sign that God chose his people to be his own. It recalls the bloody ritual of cutting when God walked between the bloody animal halves, ratifying his permanent covenant with Abraham. Now, the bloody ritual of the cutting appears in the flesh of all the males. Every male in Abraham's household, whether son or servant, as well as every male in the covenant community as a whole thereafter, is to have this sign cut in his flesh as a continual reminder of God's promise. This is no mere formality. Rather, to be circumcised meant to receive a sign of the deepest spiritual significance because it consecrated, it it set apart, as it were, the individual to the Lord God alone. He is now a member of his covenant people. Therefore, to reject the sign of the covenant was tantamount to refusing fellowship with the God who made that covenant. So let's consider the body of our text this evening and then draw our uh, theological and biblical principles at the end. First, we see how Sarai is renamed Now, we've seen how the surrogate mother, Hagar, is honored and set apart. We saw how in Thanksgiving she gives the Lord God a new name. He is now the God who sees. And here, the Lord God also names Sarai, renames her, doesn't he? In other words, both women are honored. But we can see differences between them, can't we? 
from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, they underline the root of the name that she has as meaning to strive or to persevere. There's what I would call a prophetic anticipation here because the same root is found in her grandson's new name. Now, who do I mean? Well, it's Jacob, isn't it? His renaming at the ford of Jabbok. Israel means the one who strives. Now, notice how Sarah's status in the covenant of grace is borne out by the fact that she is the only woman in the scriptures whose name is changed and whose age at her death is detailed for us. As we saw with Abraham last Lord's Day, the renaming confirms the covenant promise and underlines what? The new life. A new identification with the Lord. It's the same logic when believers also receive the name of God in the title Christian. We are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptized into union. All of God's people are renamed. Thus, this new identification demands a new life. Now, sometimes you might hear a person refer to their past life as a time when they were a carnal Christian. Now, my dear friends, there is no such thing. One can be a disobedient Christian, whom our Heavenly Father will lovingly discipline, but one cannot stay outside of the name. One cannot be both carnal, fleshly, and in union, in the name, in a new life. Now we also read Abraham's response. Now, what about this laughing business? What's going on here? Well, the first thing you must notice is that the phrase fell on his face and laughed does not convey the idea that Abraham fell about laughing. We saw, didn't we, in, in verse 3 of this chapter, how Abram's worship is described as he fell on his face. It's the same here. Abraham was renamed according to God's mighty promise. And subsequent to that, Sarah too is renamed. That not only is Abraham to be the physical progenitor of an heir, but Sarah also. So as he bows in worship in these tremendous ideas, the quality of his laughter is a mixture of incredulity and joy. He just can't believe it. We've all had this mixture ourselves, haven't we? Abraham has heard the content of this promise. How long? 24 years. Now we can imagine him bowed in worship. And the Lord speaks and he, ch he chuckles to himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard this before. I know the drill. But then he's like, yeah, well, but uh, I'm nearly 100. She's nearly 90. Come on. <laughs> this would be great. Notice the skepticism here. 
But this is getting laughable. It's the same way how we can wrongly claim the promises of the gospel and we assume one way, our way is always the right way, isn't it? You can sense the emotional force of Abraham's incredulity mixed with his deep desire for a son and heir, and he blurts out to the Lord, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, No, Sarah will give you the son, and you'll name him Isaac. No, says God. I have a plan for Ishmael. I've heard you. I've heard Hagar. But my plan for Ishmael is not your plan for Ishmael. And so the Lord shows patience and grace with Abraham because he knows these deep desires of his heart. Rather, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. In other words, finally, after 24 years, we've got a date. A year. The long wait is over. And he sets Abram's son's name as Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? He laughs. The double meaning, isn't it, of turning Abraham's doubt into a joyful fulfillment. Too good to be true. Think back, my dear friends, when you first came to faith in Christ. Burdened by sin, and the burden falls away like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, to tumble away, never to be seen again. And you just can't believe how astonishing this truly is. You, 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 the joy that comes, the laughing that comes, the amazement that comes... We move from doubt to deliverance, and there is a joy and a laughter, and it's so simple. It's wonderful. It's glorious. The gospel is a wonderful, simple truth. Oh, that more would accept it. What happens then? The Lord withdraws as his glory rises to heaven, and we Read that very day, and all, everyone. Unnecessary details, but it shows us how Abraham obeys the Lord. Repetition of all and everyone underlines how the covenant sign was given, whether or not the individual showed saving faith. Notice also how Abraham and Ishmael are named three times as the narrative includes. It concludes, one cannot separate you and your offspring. Ishmael is his offspring. But we also know from what precedes here that Isaac will in a year's time receive this very same sign. This is the ultimate covenant sign. While Ishmael receives a sign which is of the flesh only. So we already get this double sense, don't we, of the covenant community and the elect. We get this sense here uh, that Abraham's faith, once weak, that he agreed to a surrogate, 
we'll get to God by our own plan, is the reiteration of the desire to build the ziggurat at Babel, wasn't it? We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll do all this. What, why am I telling you this? Because, you see, we're seeing here how works to get to God are rejected by God. Circumcision is a sign of faith, not of works, of the flesh. The Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting one, both for the non-elect, Ishmael, and the elect, Isaac. You mustn't make this distinction that somehow circumcision was of works, not of faith. That's not what the scripture teaches. We can affirm that circumcision is a sign of faith because in the course of our study of Genesis 12 through 16, we track this two-stage fulfillment of God's promise, didn't we? Of the offspring in the land. The first stage of fulfillment is in the Old Covenant with the nation Israel and the land of Canaan, offspring and land. Israel's the promised offspring, Canaan was the promised land. We saw how the promises are not ends in themselves because they're grounded in the ultimate promise made in Genesis 3.15, the promise of a redeemer, the ultimate place of rest and communion with God. In other words, there is an ultimate fulfillment. This is the second stage or the new covenant. So the old covenant and the new, a first stage and a second. And his promise of a land looks forward to the great fulfillment of the new heavens and new earth. God's promise of an offspring gains their ultimate fulfillment in believers and their children from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan were only temporary, first-level fulfillments of God's promise to Abraham. With the coming of Christ, a greater fulfillment has occurred. So there's this continuity in the one plan of salvation for the people of God, whom the Bible describes as the seed or offspring of Abraham. There is no other way to be a child of God than to be included into Abraham's covenant. So when we speak of the covenant, we have that one covenant of grace in mind. From its seed promise in Genesis 3.15, expanded in detail to Abraham and then fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, with the coming of Christ... Circumcision is no longer the appropriate sign because Christ fulfilled it when he was cut off from the land of the living in his crucifixion. Because when he endured the sword, the sword of judgment, he was our bloody circumcision on the cross. So the covenant sign of inclusion changes, doesn't it, from circumcision to baptism. Circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant because Christ was our circumcision. So in the new covenant... The new covenantal sign administered upon initiation is baptism. That's the sign that identifies us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are baptized in the name, you see. The two-stage reality. So we should expect there to be continuities and ultimate fulfillments. So like circumcision, baptism has that one-time seal marking out an individual as belonging to the Lord and no one else. But unlike circumcision, baptism is also given to women as well as men. 
That's why when Philip preached the good news of God in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 8, what? They were baptized, both men and women. In the New Covenant, it moves toward a greater and greater fullness. There's a greater inclusion in the covenant people of God than in the Old. But there are other continuities. Like circumcision, baptism is for the believer and his children. In the New Covenant, God still claims for himself a whole covenant people, not only adult converts. The pattern he established in the Abrahamic Covenant continues into the New. That's why Peter says what he says at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now remember, who's Peter's audience on Pentecost? Fellow Jews, both of Judea and from the Jewish diaspora, and also Gentile proselytes too, all circumcised, you see. So they get it right away. But now the far off are the Gentiles. They're now fully included into God's covenant. So Peter specifically points out the promise is for you and for your children. I'm talking about the same thing, brothers. You and your children. So what does that mean? It means children of believers are not excluded from membership in God's covenant community, but included, just as they were since the beginning. So for one who denies infant baptism because it's meant to be spiritual, in other words, it's based on evidence of faith only. You have to show evidence of faith first, then you may be baptized. And so the testimony you hear before they are actually immersed, one has to answer a simple question. Why doesn't Peter make a qualification in his sermon about this? No, wait, baptism is going to be very different. This is not the same. But he doesn't qualify it. Rather, he expands it. The promise and the sign are to those far off, to the Gentiles, because they knew what happened in Abraham's household. It was always meant for all nations of the earth to be blessed through him. Baptism and circumcision are linked in this way. That's why Paul addresses children in Ephesians 6, the children of believers, as members of the covenant of grace. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Well, okay, he says that, but notice he reminds them how of the fifth commandment in the very next verse, showing that new covenant children have the same privileges as old covenant children, only greater and further. They're to be raised as disciples of Christ. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And for homework, just compare that verse, Ephesians 6, verse 4, with the words in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. The words are the same. We're still in the same thinking, you see. So these children are considered members of the 
covenant community, no less than they were in the old covenant. And as such, they should receive the covenant sign and be baptized. And the Abrahamic covenant tells us that God claims the children of believers as his own and should be regarded as heirs, just like they are. Baptism-like circumcision, of course, does not save them or anyone. For faith, not baptism, or circumcision is the instrument whereby the righteousness of Christ is received and imputed to us as sinners. That's why it's so important to understand that circumcision is of faith, not of works. Yet baptism is God's sacrament of inclusion into his covenant of grace, and by it God promises salvation to those who believe. It helps parents understand that their children are rightful recipients of the sign and are heirs of the covenant, and that they are stewards of these children who must be brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The Abrahamic covenant assures our faith by highlighting the work of Christ, the offspring of Abraham, because Christ was made a curse for us. He suffered the realities of the blood oath of Genesis 15, and we are no longer under that curse because we are in his name. We will constantly relate to God by the law and attempt to earn his favor apart from Christ. But the Abrahamic covenant shows you and me that in Christ, in him, we have been made Abraham's offspring and heirs according to God's promise. It announces good news to us by telling us that we have been given eternal life and access into the holy presence of God. That's how Hebrews 10 says it, doesn't it? Have, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.